Chapter 10, verse 1. Ahab had 70 sons living in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the leading officials of Jezreel and to the guardians of Ahab's dynasty. This is what the letter said. You have with you the sons of your masters, chariots and horses, a fortified city and weapons. So when the letter arrives, pick the best and the most capable of your master's sons and place them on his master's throne and defend your master's dynasty. That's a very vague letter. You officials are connected to and even have command over 70 of the sons of Ahab. When the time comes, pick the best of the leaders in Israel and put him on the throne. And by the way, you have lots of weapons at your disposal. Now, what is he doing here? If you just heard the news that this Jehu guy has killed the king of Israel killed the king of Judah, and killed Jezebel, who everybody feared. And he's got the entire Israelite army under his control and backing him. And he sends you a letter and says, hey, you better pick the right king to put on the throne. You have a bunch of sons of Ahab. You better pick the right king to put on the throne. Oh, by the way, you have a bunch of weapons. What he's saying is this. You should kill all the 70 sons of Ahab and then put me on the throne. And if you don't put me on the throne, well, just look at what I've been doing to everybody who opposes me. Now, why didn't he just come out and say that? So that he can't be guilty of giving them a command to wipe out the sons. Which means he knows what he's doing is wrong. If you're afraid to say, go kill all the sons of Ahab, then that means you know what you're doing is wrong. And so the letters are vague enough, but they, they know it. If somebody comes to you and say, hey, you have a bunch of, you, there are 70 sons around you and you have a bunch of weapons. It doesn't take much to put it, especially you and I don't live in the political world of everybody killing each other to gain power, but they do. Remember, these are the same officials who did what? Remember, these are the officials of Jezreel and Samaria. When did we last see the officials of Samaria? You remember? It also involved letters being written to them. Jezebel wrote letters to the officials of Samaria and said, get Naboth and throw a celebration for him and then falsely accuse him of blasphemy against God so you can kill him because we want his land. Now the officials are getting another letter. Hey, kill the family of Ahab. Now, the only other time that letters have been mentioned in the book of Kings is with Jezebel writing letters. Now, Jehu's also writing letters, which is connecting the actions of Jehu to Jezebel. These are all literary devices connecting Jehu's actions to bad people. And so he's writing letters saying, politically speaking, hint, 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 kill all the sons of Ahab and put me on the throne if you want to keep your positions for the rest of your life. If you don't, then, well, you've seen what I've done to everybody else. This is what he's saying. This is why it said they were absolutely terrified. Look, two kings could not stop him. How can we? So the palace supervisor and the city commissioner and the leader and the guardian sent this message to Jehu. We are your subjects. Whatever you say, we will do. We will not make anyone king do what you consider proper. 
So basically they're saying, we're so scared of you. And, and no, two kings couldn't stop him. So they write back and say, don't worry. We will not try to take one of the sons of Ahab and make them a king against you. Just let us live and let us stay in command. So he wrote back to them a second letter, verse 6, saying, If you are really on my side and you are willing to obey me, then take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel at this time tomorrow. Now at this point he has no problem saying kill them all. Because now they've shown that they're willing to do what he says. And he's got wheels going, wheels within wheels, plans within plans. Now the king had 70 sons, and the prominent men of the city were raising them. And when they received the letter, they seized the king's sons and executed all 70 of them. They put their heads. Now notice that some of these sons of Ahab are being raised, which means some of these are children. And all their heads are getting executed. They're all being executed, and the 70 of them, they put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jezreel. Now remember, cutting the heads off of people is a Canaanite practice and a Philistine practice. And they have brought the heads of the king's son. And Jehu said, stack them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. That's an Assyrian practice. The Assyrians were known. See, yeah, the Canaanites would cut heads off and that kind of stuff. And they might carry around as a trophy. But that's about it. The Assyrians would literally cut heads off and stack them up in piles in front of their city gates. And it was a warning to everybody, don't go against us. Now, why in the world would Jehu be doing that? Because we're going to learn later that Jehu has become pro-Assyria. And Jehu is going to make an alliance with Assyria. And so now Jehu is beginning to act more like a pagan despot king than he is like anything of God. And even if God gave you permission to kill people, remember the book of Judges? They were given permission to kill the Canaanites, but they were not given permission to mutilate and torture them. God never, even in the death penalty, God says, I command you to execute those who commit murder. But he never said you could torture them and mutilate them and dismember them. Never said that. And so Jehu is showing through his actions that he is more like an Assyrian pagan despot than he is anything of the person of God. They have brought the heads of the king's sons. So Jehu stacked them up. Verse 9. In the morning he went out and he stood there. Then he said to all the people, You are innocent. I conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these men? Therefore take note that not one of the judgments of Yahweh announced against Jehab's, Ahab's dynasty has failed to materialize. And Yahweh has done what he announced through his servant Elijah. Then Jehu killed all who were left in Ahab's family and Jezreel and all of his nobles, close friends and priests. He left no survivors. He, this is what he's done. He's basically said, you're all innocent of killing the king of Israel. I'm the one that did that. But you killed all the sons. He has intentionally forced them into the same bed with him now. You want to try to cry treason and injustice against me and try to kill me for murder? You've just done the same thing. We're in this together. This is ancient world blackmail. And all these heads right here are the photographs, so to speak. Evidence against you. We're in this together. Your hands are bloody. My hands are bloody. Welcome to the reign of Jehu. And then he quotes the prophecy again to kind of back it up and validate it all. But then he goes way overboard here. 
Because Noses says that not only is he killing all the sons of Ahab, he goes off and he kills the priest of Ahab. And he kills the friends of Ahab's family. That was nowhere in the prophecy. Not even the jacked up prophecy of the son of the prophet, the junior prophet. And this shows his war path and his bloodthirstiness. Then Jehu left there and set out for Samaria. While he was traveling through Beth Echad and of the shepherds, Jehu encountered the relatives of King Ahaziah of Judah. And he asked, Who are you? And they replied, We are Ahaziah's relatives. We have come down to see how the king's sons and the queen's mother's sons are doing. He said, Capture them alive. So they captured them alive and then executed all 40 of two of them and the cisterns of Beth Echad, and he left no survivors. So these are just people showing up for a family reunion. And now he kills them. When he left there, he met Jehoinadab, son of Rechab, who had been looking for him. And Jehu greeted him and asked, Are you as committed to me as I am to you? I am, Jehu replied. If so, give me your hand. So he offered his hand, and Jehu pulled him up into the chariot. This is the equivalent of sitting at the same banquet table together. We're comrades now. Jehu said, Come with me and see how zealous I am for Yahweh's cause. So he took him along in his chariot and went to Samaria and exterminated the members of Ahab's family who were still alive in Samaria, just as Yahweh announced to Elijah. Now what this shows you is that um, Jehonadab, it shows you that there's other people in Israel who hate the Ahab family too. Jehu's not the only one. But the other thing is like, this is really kind of sick and twisted. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. Now come up into my chariot and see how zealous I am for God by killing everybody. Even if God has specifically told him to kill these people, that is not the heart that God wants. No one should be saying, come on, let's go see and watch us kill all those Canaanites. It doesn't matter how much you believe that God has called you to be a soldier for the American army and to defend the rights of this country. It doesn't matter how just the war might be. It doesn't matter how just you are in defending yourself and killing the enemies and protecting the country. You have no right in your heart to high-five the people in your platoon for killing people and putting notches in your gun and taking pictures of your people and hanging them as trophies and bragging about the people you kill in war. It's one thing to be called by God to execute justice. It's another thing to take pride in the destruction of life and brag about it. And that shows the heart of Jehu. That shows the heart of Jehu. That brings us to the priest of Baal. Chapter 10, verse 18. Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab worshipped Baal a little, Jehu will worship Baal much. So now, bring to me all the prophets of Baal, as well as all of his servants and all of his priests. None of them must be absent, for I am offering a great sacrifice to Baal, and we're going to have a Baal with our disco Baal. (laughs) Any of them who fail to appear will lose their lives. But Jehu was tricking them so he could destroy the servants of Baal. So he's like, 
Everybody has to be here. Then Jehu ordered, make arrangements for the celebration for Baal. So they announced it. And Jehu sent invitations throughout Israel. And all the servants of Baal came. Not one of them was absent. They arrived at the temple of Baal and filled it up from end to end. And Jehu ordered the one who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the robes for all the servants of Baal. So he brought out the robes for them. And then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, went to the temple of Baal. And Jehu said to the servants of Baal, Make sure that there are no servants of Yahweh here with you. There must be only servants of Baal. And notice how to make sure everybody's here. Nobody wants to be left out because it's going to be the party of the century. Okay? Did all the Facebook invitations go out? And then now let's make sure no prophets of Yahweh are here because we all know how much they're fun killers when it comes to parties. Okay? So he's just making sure that everybody who's supposed to be there is there and nobody else. When he had finished offering the burnt offerings, sacrifice, Jehu ordered the royal guard and the officers come in and strike them all down. Don't let any escape. So the royal guard and the officers struck them down with a sword and left their bodies lying there. Then they entered the inner sanctuary of the temple of Baal, and they hauled out the sacred pillar of the temple of Baal and burned it. They demolished the sacred pillar of Baal and the temple of Baal, and is used to this day as a latrine. So Jehu eradicated Baal worship from Israel. So he gets them all in the temple, and he tells his men, If anybody leaves this temple alive, it's your life or theirs. And then he sends his other men in, and they just go into the temple and massacre everybody. And then he takes the Baal stone and he brings it out and destroys it. And then he tears down the temple. And here's the last final pun on Baal's above, the Lord of the dung. His temple was turned into a latrine for dung. From that point on, everybody used the temple of Baal to pee and go to the bathroom in. And so Baal's temple, he has literally become Lord of the dung. Lord of the Fries. And this is God's one last taunt against Baal in that area. The irony here. Now, here's what's interesting. This is the one thing that Jehu had the right to do. Because in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, God said, you are to kill all false prophets in the land. And I don't care if it's your dad, your brother, or your son. You are to kill them. And the one thing that you had permission to kill, regardless of your station in life, was false prophets. This is the one thing that he actually did right. Verse 29. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who encouraged Israel to commit the golden calves, remained in Bethel and Dan. So he got rid of all Baal worship, but he fell prey and victim to worshiping the golden calves. Yahweh said to Jehu, you have done well. You have accomplished my will and carried out my wishes with regard to Ahab's dynasty. Therefore, four generations of your descendants will rule over Israel. But Jehu did not carefully obey wholeheartedly the law of Yahweh of Israel. He did not return away from the sins of Jeroboam that encouraged them to sin. If you just thought you understood that everything that Jehu did was wrong, God goes and throws a wrench into it and says, I am proud that you did everything I wanted you to do. 
you're going to get four generations of people sitting on the throne. And you're like, what the heck just happened there? Why is that there? To throw a bigger wrench in this, if you go to Hosea chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, Hosea in there prophesies the word of God, and we know that Hosea is saying the word of God right, because he's in the Bible and all that kind of stuff. He literally says, and God says, and I will punish the family of Jehu, and I will punish Israel for what Jehu did to the family of Ahab and how he wiped them all out. Like, okay, God, which one is it? Like, you're happy that Jehu did all this, and you're rewarding him for four generations, but at the same time, you're like really angry at him, and you're going to punish his family in Israel for what he did here, according to the prophet Hosea. And the answer is yes. (laughs) It's both. And here's why. Everything that Jehu did was wrong, except for the Baal prophets. But Jehu didn't know that. But yeah, he kind of did. In some ways, Jehu knows that his actions are overly violent, overly massacring, bloodshed, because he keeps quoting the prophecy, and he makes sure that everybody knows that their hands are just as bloody as his. And you don't say things like that when you really truly think you're innocent. And that shows that his heart is evil. But at the same time, he really did believe that the prophet told him to do it. And because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, and he has no way of really fact-checking it, and God is a compassionate, merciful, understanding God. And he gets it. And we've seen this over and over again. Did Gideon have any right to throw out the fleece and test God? No. He said, God, if you really can give me victory, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. Oh, God, don't be angry with me. But if you really can do this, switch it around. But did God comply? Because he's a reasonable, compassionate, merciful God. He deals with people with where they are. Gideon was young and immature in his faith in God. And God walked with him. Now, were there consequences? Yeah, but there were no judgments. But Moses, who knew God really well, blatantly disobeyed the command of God. And God smashed him, metaphorically speaking. And did not allow him in the promised land. Because here's the thing about our God. He is just. He is not fair. But he's just. You see, you don't want fair. Fair is all of us burning in hell for all eternity. And you don't want fair really either. Because that means if I accidentally trip and fall with scissors and stab somebody and they die and somebody else premeditates it and plans a murder and violently massacres them and takes joy in it, we both get the death penalty. That's fair. We both get punished for the same crime. Justice is that you look at my circumstances, and there are consequences, but not nearly to the same degree as premeditated murder. And we do that. It's called manslaughter versus premeditation murder. We don't really want fairness. This is something I try to teach my kids. They're like, that's not fair. It's like, you don't really want fair. Okay? You want justice. And God is just. And he looks at Jehu, and he looks at his life, and he says, the prophet came and told you this. And you're living in a culture that is so disconnected from God. 
You might not even know that you're supposed to ask for signs. And you did it really thinking that you're obeying me. And so I will reward you with four generations of kings. But at the same time, you knew deep down in your heart that you were going too far. And there was way too much bloodshed. Because here's the other thing. If God was really truly pleased with Jehu, he would have made an eternal dynasty with him. When he was pleased with David, he said, I will make your descendants king forever. And then when he went to Jeroboam, the first king of the north, after the split, he said, if you obey me, I will make your descendants kings forever. And then he went to Baasha and said, if you walked in my ways, I would have made you kings forever too. If God was truly 100% pleased with Jehu, he would have made his descendants kings forever. But instead, God is just. He rewards Jehu for what he knows and what he did with the little knowledge of God that he had. But at the same time, Jehu knew that he was bloody and he was violent and he was doing it for his own power and his own gain. And God only gave him four dynasties. And then after that, he was going to punish the house of Jehu, according to the prophet Hosea. And here's what's interesting. Ahab's family only had four generations of kings. And Jehu's going to get four. He's only going to get the same amount of kings that Ahab had. And then his house is going to end in the same way that Ahab's did. And so God is just. And still there's a little bit of you might be like, yeah, but that doesn't still fit and sit well with me. But we're also finite in the way that we think. (laughs) And we don't understand the bigger picture. And we do not ever balance justice and mercy well in our life when we're dealing with people. We try, and we get closer sometimes than other times, but we're not perfect in it. And so it's hard for us to look at this and say, but that's not truly balanced, God. Well, who are we to say that when we're missing up the way that we discipline people all the time? And so God rewards them for what he knew and how he handled it, but he also punishes them for going too far when he knows that that was not okay. And so he's going to get four generations, and then that's it. Verse 32. In those days, Yahweh began to reduce the size of Israel's territory. Haziel attacked their eastern borders. He conquered all the land of Gilead, including the territory of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, extending all the way from Eror to Anon Valley through Gilead to Bashan. Now, that is chock full of a whole bunch of theological statements. The first thing is, remember that God made two promises to Israel. I will make you into a great nation, and you will be numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars of the sky, and I will give you all the land from the El Arash River, the river of Egypt, all the way to Euphrates, so that you can be a blessing to the world. So now what is God saying here? He began to reduce the size of their land. That's a huge judgment. Over and over and over and over again. From the garden when God said, be fruitful, multiply, and expand the garden. To Abraham when he says, I will make you fruitful, multiply, and I'll expand your kingdom. And then over and over again, that gets repeated over and over and over again. And now God is saying, I'm reducing your population and I'm reducing your land. 
Deuteronomy said, if you obey God, then he would multiply you and bring abundance in the land. If you disobey God, then he would reduce you. And at this point, God is saying, we've crossed a new line. We've crossed a new line. There are several lines that have been crossed so far. The first one was when God, they had come to the point where God allowed people to invade, people to attack them. That was one. And then he split the kingdom. So the kingdom split and people began to attack them. But that's minor. That happened, well, it's not minor, but in the whole judgment of God, that's minor. That happened a lot in Judges. That happened in Samuel. And they always pretty much recovered from that when they got obedient and repented and had revivals. But then we crossed another line when Elijah exited the land and basically made the point that you are the new Egypt. And I'm going to treat you with plagues like God treated Egypt with plagues. That's pretty new. Yes, God had sent plagues to punish Israel at different times and they recovered, but he never made it so theologically in their face, like taking the most prominent prophet and exiting him out of the land. That was a little bit more like, yes, this plague thing has happened before, but the fact that I'm doing it so dramatically with the prophet means we're in a new level here. But Israel didn't turn away from their sins. So then the next line we cross when he said, and God used Haziel to begin to break everything down. And it began a little bit when Haziel became king, but now he's really emphasizing it now that things are falling apart. God is reducing them. And we've never seen Israel reduce this much. Yes, Joshua expanded the territory. He kind of grabbed this entire territory. And then um, Saul kind of lost it a little bit. But that was a minor. But it's one thing for David to gain all of this territory and then to be reduced back down to this. So this is the most major reduction of land that we have ever seen in the Bible. And so what this shows you is that we're in a third stage of God really bringing his judgments on. A third stage of God bringing his judgments on. Now, what we're not going to see in the book of Kings is in a little bit, Elisha is going to die. We'll we'll see that in the Kings. But what we're not going to see is the, the death of Elisha is immediately followed by the rise of the, 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 the prophets who we have called the prophetic books. And they're going to introduce the fourth stage when they're basically going to say, the Assyrians are coming. Now, we're not going to see the words of those prophets and kings very much, as we will in the prophetic books. But when Elisha dies, we enter into a fourth stage where no longer is Elisha just doing judgments against kings and miracles, we're not going to actually have prophets saying, you're doomed, it's coming, the Assyrians. And so notice how God's doing this in stages. God doesn't just fly off the handle and just smash them because they're bad. He sends them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them and warn them and warn them. And then it takes them years upon years upon years to escalate the level of judgment and then to escalate it again, and then again, before he finally brings them into exile. They have plenty of warnings and judgments, as well as slow escalations, as well as prophets warning them 
to know that they should turn back. And remember, this is happening over a 700-year period. So they have entered into a new stage. Verse 34. And then here's the other thing that's going on here. Notice the lands that got lost first are the ones on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now this takes us way back. In the book of Numbers, they were coming up on a brand new land of Canaan that they had never been into yet. And Joshua was leading them, and Moses was leading them, and they come on the eastern side of the Jordan River, right across from Jericho, and Moses says, I can't go with you anymore because God's not going to let me. Joshua's taking over. And they defeat Sihon and Og on the eastern side. Now, they're supposed to politically control the eastern side, but they were never allowed to live on the eastern side as a people group. And so Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh said, this land looks really good. Let us stay here. And this is one of the very few times that Moses did not consult God. He just said, okay, you can have it. Now what happens is they're the first tribes to disappear. And they just, they dissolve slowly over time. And they just kind of get carried off over and over. The first people that get carried off into exile are the people on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And it's not by the Assyrians, it's by Aram. And so God is showing they're the first ones to face the consequences because they were the first ones to say, we don't really want to go into that land. We like it over here. And God says, fine, you're the first ones to disappear. You're the first ones to disappear. Verse 34, the rest of the events of Jehu's reign, including his accomplishments and successes, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. Jehu passed away, was buried in Samaria, as son Jehoahaz replaced him as king, and Jehu reigned over Israel for 28 years in Samaria. Jehu got the closest to being a godly king in Israel. There's no godly kings in Israel. Jehu got the closest. And even then, it was still worshiping golden calves. That shows you how pathetic Israel is. Paul R. House had this great insight into his actions. Remember, it's not just what you do, it's what your motive is as well. Despite his attacks against Baalism, Jehu does not lead the nation to separatist Yahwehism. He allows the worship instituted by Jeroboam to continue. In effect, then, he expels the foreign religion, Baalism, in favor of the long-standing Israelite state religion begun by Jeroboam. Apparently, he believes that reform beyond the elimination of Ahab's children, Ahab's wife, Ahab's religion, that is what secures his power, does not concern him. Indeed, he acts as the instrument of punishment against the corrupt Omri dynasty, the grandfather of Ahab, but he does not operate out of an Elijah-like motives. Rather, he is a like a Syrian, an Assyria, a Babylon, an instrument that punishes but exhibits few personal moral strengths. Israel is now back to where it was before Ahab and Jezebel assumed leadership, but it has certainly not come back to Yahweh. And I think that's important to understand is though he does eliminate Ahab and Baal, he does not eliminate the long-standing religion of Israel. He only eliminates that which is foreign to his country, as in other nations, and he only eliminates what gets in his way of having power. But on the but if you look deeper, you realize that he is not a revivalist. 
He does not lead a revival towards Yahweh in any kind of a way. All he does is eliminate foreign sins and foreign powers, but maintains local and indigenous sins and powers. So all he's doing is purifying the Israeliteness of everything, even the Israelite sins. He's only eliminating what is foreign. And he does not lead anybody towards Yahweh. And that is why Yahweh condemns his dynasty. Not just because he eliminated the house of Ahab when he should have never, and not just because he eliminated Baal, but because he really doesn't do it for Yahweh. And it's really out of bloodshed, power, and greed. 